Presidings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com slash EW. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. Welcome back to Home Field. It's been a few weeks since uh, certainly I was here and doing the show. We were on the road out at Tailhook, you and me. Right, we were in Reno. In Reno, and we we did how many, four or five shows out there? Five shows. Five shows, that's incredible, at Tailhook, all great. Um, and then I was up with uh, your deputy, Bill Bray, last week with General Kelly at the Coast Guard Academy for a very fascinating interview. Uh, listeners haven't heard that one. They really need to seek it out on the Proceedings Podcast page at usni.org and listen to that one. Yeah, one of our best episodes, I would I, say. I, I agree. And, I, and, agree. I, and I, I was telling a, uh, a couple people that yesterday and today, and, and uh, I'll explain a little bit of the, the the surroundings of that. I was talking to a lot of uh, VIPs and visitors and, and Naval Institute members yesterday and today because we had the groundbreaking for the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center today. So that was this morning, uh, 11 o'clock, uh, lots of uh, really amazing people here, supporters of the Naval Institute. And uh, just, you know, wonderful to have conversations with people like Admiral Mullen last night at, at dinner uh, and a number of other, you know, supporters and uh, with the chairman of our board, uh, uh, Bob Work, et cetera. Uh, but I was talking to a couple of people about that podcast episode with General Kelly last week, uh, which you and Bill did, uh, which was so good, I thought, because you had him for 59 minutes and he got to talk about his time as a Marine, as a enlisted Marine, a Marine officer, Marine general, Southcom commander, uh, head of the Department of Homeland Security, and then chief of staff of the White House. And it wasn't sound bites. It wasn't like 15 second, you know, spliced into a news report that was overall two minutes and 22 seconds long, right? 59 minutes with a guy who has an incredible capacity to understand complex topics and gave full nuanced answers to things like border security, the war on drugs, uh, the war in Iraq, uh, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, and it was just a fantastic, really fantastic interview. So if you haven't read, if you haven't listened to that, go back and, and listen to it because it's it's well worth, I think, anybody's time, not just our normal audience, you know, Naval Institute members and you know, sea service uh, veterans and sea service officers and enlisted people, but anybody I think could learn from that because it's timely. And here's a guy who's been in the mix uh, of of really big issues facing the nation in terms of national security uh, over the last, you know, for a long time, but especially between 2003 with Iraqi freedom and, and 2019 with White House Chief of Staff and Homeland Security issues. Uh, it was just a great, great interview. And what a gift to be able to have that amount of time with him, as you've described. So this is sort of the fun of being on the staff here of the Naval Institute is we have days like that. We have days like today where we're dealing with 
are in our in company with two former chairman of the Joint Chiefs and a vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, undersecretaries, the current superintendent of the Naval Academy, all kinds of folks who, uh, you, you know, EVPs at Facebook and other tech companies. Uh, the the chairman of Enterprise Rent a Car, who is the son of the founder of Enterprise Rent a Car, just amazing. And then last week we were out there with the people, at uh, or actually it's starting to almost be two weeks now. We're out there with the people at, in Reno talking to the JOs of the TAC Air community, and so in touch with the deck plates. And again, we get to see it from both sides. Really, what a gift to be able to be part of the staff here at the Naval Institute. So that was really a blast. So. As we've described on the show a few times, the, the, this conference center is a game changer for the Naval Institute. Today it became real. We had the groundbreaking, which is ceremonial, but the backhoes are sort of in low holding, ready to start you know, tearing up uh, parts of our back lot here. 18 months from now, we'll have a ribbon cutting. And uh, this will be 15 or 16 months from now. Is that what we're saying? December of 2020. So that's 15 months from now. It's going to be be a fast turn. Roger that. And so this will be really something that our members can uh, come when they are in Annapolis, can come and put eyes on and be part of. And it's not just for us. It's for the entire Naval Institute ecosystem and family, if you will, uh, of members and colleagues influencers and end users. So super excited about this thing. If you haven't seen the video on YouTube, um, maybe there's some way we can post it in in some fashion. Uh, is it on usni.org? It is. It's also on, there's a separate uh, URL for the the conference center as well for the, the, um, the fundraising the effort, the campaign, right? Okay. It's, it's campaign.usni.org. Thank okay. you. Thank you for that. Campaign.usni.org. And there's a video there. You can click on it. It'll walk you through what the, the new conference center is going to look like from the outside in. Uh, 400 plus seat, acoustically perfect auditorium. Uh, it's really going to be. There's going to be a media be center. Incredible. We'll have a full up broadcast studio. Right. We won't have to use Studio C and B anymore. Not that that's a bad thing. But uh, breakout rooms, it's going to be really a, a beautiful facility. So if you haven't seen that video, check that out, and you'll see what we're talking about here um, and so forth. So uh, what else we got going on before we get to our guest? Well, we just put the October issue of Proceedings to bed. So um, my team finished that up yesterday, sent it off to the printer. That's uh, our so undersea warfare issue. Yep. October is always our focus on submarines and ASW, undersea warfare. Uh, we got some really great uh, articles, including uh, one by Commander Joel Holwit, who won the CNO Naval History Essay Contest. And uh, his article that uh, is in the uh, most recent issue of Naval History uh, about you know World War II submarine hero uh, is getting great reviews by people. And so Joel uh, wrote a super nice piece about ASW lessons from uh, the Cold War, uh, which is a great article, but there's a number of others as well. Uh, so the, the ASW package in the October issue is going to be something you don't want to miss, even if you're an aviator, even if you're a Top Gun guy, even if you're a Marine, you know, the, the, the importance of ASW, particularly against, uh, you know, uh, in a high-end fight, as the former commandant of the Marine Corps said at, at West at our big conference in uh, 2018, uh, talking about the, the needs of the sea service in, in, you know, in this pure competition, 
Uh, it was great to hear the commandant say, I think we're going to need more submarines. Right? Which uh, the Which, CNO was very happy. Yeah, the CNO, the, the like, submariner was that. very right, right. <laughs> hugged him. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so ASW and you know the ability to hunt submarines and keep uh, or de-louse uh, from, from submarines uh, is critically important against uh, the, the high-end pure, pure fight right now. And we'll also be doing the podcast live from the Submarine League Symposium on November 6th and 7th in Crystal City. So if you're in the greater D.C. area and attending that, uh, we'll look for you there, just like we were at Tailhook. So we look forward to getting in touch with our submarine uh, friends at that event in November. Sounds good. Sounds yep. good. Okay, so let's get to our guest today. So in the uh, I'm sorry, in the September issue of uh, Proceedings, on page, starting on page 56, is an article by one of our... Um, few Air Force authors over the last couple of years. And I think this is our first Air Force guest on the podcast. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, you're right. Yeah. So uh, on the line to, uh, with us today is Colonel Mike Petruca, uh, U.S. Air Force, and his article is called, We Were Well-Trained Once and Young. And before Mike uh, breaks in here, I'm just going to read the first paragraph. In today's development of future concepts, technology is all the rage. Whether it's a promised third offset, multi-domain battle, data to decisions, or the Air Force's future operating concept, future battle concepts not only demand new technology, but are reliant on it. But lost in the discussion is the human element. Mentioned in passing in the context of human machine teaming or treated as woefully inefficient biological system in need of technological help, this is a conceptual failure of mammoth proportions. Mike Petruca, thanks for joining us. Ah, thank you. I'm thrilled. The 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 uh, conceptual failure of not focusing on the human element of the of the equation is is a mistake of mammoth proportions. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So you know, let me get out front: is that of course I'm a serving Air Force officer, and my opinions are not necessarily the opinions of the department, which of course is the point of the article. So when you listen to DOD leadership or you listen to speeches or you see documents come out about the wonders of technology, um, you end up with, a, with a, a mindset that focuses on the technology as the leading aspect of U.S. warfighting. And I think that's fundamentally wrong, and I think historically – that is a trend item that we keep running into over and over and over again. The Army Air Corps ran into it in the Second World War uh, with the idea that the high technology, you know, B-17, uh, was always going to get through, and that didn't work. You know, there was a time when the Air Force fielded the F-105, the Thunder Chief, and like every other fighter, when we roll it out, the Air Force says, hey, this is the most technologically advanced fighter ever. And it might be true, but more than half the F-105s built hit the ground at inappropriate times in either combat or training. Uh, and so what I think that we miss, and it's easy to underfund, is the idea that the technology is important. Um, you could even go as far as to say it's critical. But war is a human endeavor, and the technology is not as critical as the people who are using it. And I think that if the pendulum swings too far, and it often does, towards buying high tech, and you short your people and their training and their education and their exercises, that you're setting yourself up for failure when it actually comes to a conflict. So 
you give some good historical examples of this, and you were just talking about some of the stuff like B-17. You don't necessarily think high-tech when you think B-17, but uh, your point is well taken. What are some of the high points of that that are germane to the modern discussion? So it, you can always pick a system or a group of systems depending on your theater. And my current uh, point of attack in many cases is uh, command and control. Uh, we practice with our command and control. We are looking at computerized decision aids. We talk about decision speed um, as if all those neat communications links and computer systems that we use to enable that is going to stay functional and we're going to have it when we need it. So when you look at the training aspect of that, I'm all for using high technology tools, but I'm also all for spending at least as much time training what to do when your high technology tools fail. You know, an example from a modern fighter, the F-15E has GPS, of course, everybody else does. Um, and But it wasn't always the case. And so if you train, and when Strike Eagle guys come into uh, the program, when they learn to fly the airplane, they don't get to use the GPS to start. They have to use fundamentals for navigation, the radar, the targeting pod, dead reckoning, timing, uh, before they get to turn on the fancy toys, because in that case, if you lose a system, an important system, you can still perform the mission. So you you mentioned, uh, you start off with one of the, uh, the early history examples is the, the air war over Korea and how uh, the F-86 uh, Sabre was maybe on par with or maybe in some ways a little inferior to the MiG-15, but the importance of a core of well-trained, experienced individuals uh, to that air, to that effort, right? And so uh, of the 39 aces in Korea, 34 had fought in World War II. Uh, and, and that just gets to your point of, uh, hey, it's really important. The people are an incredibly important thing. And, and earlier in this same issue of proceedings in the, uh, in the September issue, and we interviewed a bunch of the authors out at, at, at Tailhook, there was a great discussion about the how going into the air war in Vietnam, the Navy was flying the most advanced fighter at the time. So was the Air Force, the F-4, uh, with the you know a, uh, AIM-7 missile. And yet the kill ratio for the Air Force and the Navy with that aircraft was about 2.5 to 1 against MiG-17s and, and much less well-trained uh, pilots because they weren't all that well-trained. And they, they had, they had uh, focused on the technology rather than on the training, rather than on the art of air-to-air -air combat. You can see that theme among, you know, particularly in aviation units, as you go back historically and you look at complaints that were made about flying hours being cut or training being trimmed down to make it safer. That's actually a very common theme, uh, is where safety took the place of uh, sensible tactical execution or where, you know, cost measures reduce the number of flying hours. When I was a lieutenant flying the Mighty Phantom II, uh, we routinely expected aviators to get 300 hours a year, and they were good hours. These were not long 14-hour sorties. They were 1.1-hour sorties over and over and over again, where the majority of airborne time was spent doing something tactical. Is it possible to replace some of that with uh, live, virtual, and constructive? So what's the role? How is the Air Force trying to roll technology to save some money 
but using uh, the virtual training and the constructive training. What's your thought on that, Mike? So I think that there is definitely a place for live virtual constructive training. I mean, we, we've proven that over years with, with something simple like emergency procedures training. Um, when you go into a simulator, you can fail the engine or you can set the engine on fire or you can lose your hydraulics or electrics or any one of a number of uh, emergencies, in-flight emergencies that you can simulate. So we know that there's an aspect of that. When you get to very complex scenarios that you can't train on, where you know you might have 12 of you and 16 of the other guy, there's an obvious space for simulation. But what the simulator doesn't do for you is it doesn't necessarily give you the feel of how the airplane performs when you're at 30 units of AOA, when you're pulling back on the stick you know, and trying to tighten that turn up. Uh, you don't get G-forces. There's a lot of uh, uh, things that uh, that you don't get. You don't necessarily, depending on the simulator, get an ability to turn around under Gs, you know, and look behind you and then still try and fly the airplane. What I found, I was actually doing an experiment. We used all experienced aviators at the high-fidelity Boeing Sims in St. Louis for the Strike Eagle. And I was in the front seat, which is not my normal cockpit, and I was, I misprioritized my taskings. I was looking down at the radar. I looked up at the HUD and watched my radar altimeter flash to 16 feet. I was in a cold sweat because I knew the back of my brain, I knew I had almost just killed myself because I was an experienced guy, you know, and I had had at that point 1,700 fighter hours and the simulator was good enough that it got back to my training and influenced how my brain functioned. The reality was I was at zero knots, zero altitude, and one G, and I hadn't actually killed myself. So there's definitely a place for high-fidelity simulation, but I, I wonder, and I don't know this for a fact, if you get more bang for the buck for somebody who has already experienced flying a real aircraft as opposed to somebody you're bringing up to speed in it, you know, emergency procedures and stuff like that accepted. So you, the most extreme, and let me see if you agree with this, but the most extreme mission that you've participated in is the wild weasel mission where you know, you're an F4G electronic warfare officer, sort of like a, a surface air missile sponge trolling through SAM rings to try to draw their fire. Um, so when you think about the real world missions that you did, how was the simulation? How can you even recreate that sort of environment in any realistic way? I was fortunate enough, 28 December 1998, Batcross and I were the lead of a group of Strike Eagles, you know, supported by Prowlers and Vipers that killed an SA-3 site. And we did it with laser-guided bombs because that's what we had. Uh, and I could actually recreate that fairly well, I think, and in working out the techniques and the timing and get something useful out of that because I don't recall any terror involved in this process. Again, you know, at that point, 1,500-ish hours, more than 100 combat missions, but there were still things for me to learn, right? And so I didn't realize until we left Turkey after the strike. We killed the SAM. We went to knife fight range. We dropped on him, and the flight obliterated the, the radar and the control van, 
And it wasn't until I went to fence out, cross over a friendly border, change the IFF, et cetera, that I took my hands off the hand controllers and realized how much I was shaking. So it might not create the adrenaline rush, and it certainly doesn't of the whole start of the engagement, which was just us being ambushed and shot at. But there were still a lot of things we could learn in what was a fairly complex scenario. Uh, and I actually think that kind of thing would go fairly well for simulation. But again, um, you know, it's not a substitute. It's a training enhancement. So that was uh, Operation Northern Watch over in northern Iraq? Uh, at that time, yes. Yeah, so I'm thinking about the echo ranges that I've done at Fallon particularly, right, where they light up your raw gear. Um, and then every once in a while, they'll shoot off this little Sam-looking thing um, and you do a glib maneuver or whatever, that's probably as realistic as it can get in a you know high threat SAM environment. Um, and one of the themes of our podcast is the return to the the high end threat. And so the idea of going against an integrated air defense system, something our tactical aviators haven't done since nine eleven really, uh, is back in play. So to your point, if we believe that all of our simulator devices can replicate the G, the breathing, the O2, the intensity, et cetera, um, we're, we're probably mistaken. Oh, I totally agree with that assessment. Um, you know, so I wouldn't rule out LVC as a training tool by any means, but I think it's a better training tool if you don't make a substitution, right, considered enhancement. So I'm going to fly my 300 flying hours, and I'm going to get another 300 simulator hours, that would be phenomenal. Yeah, because too often, especially when we're coming up with budgets, right, flight hour funding and, and maintenance man hours and all of that sort of thing, the bean counters, to be pejorative, uh, can get too cute uh, with that sort of thing. And then the engineers can over leverage, as you've said, the technology piece, and we lose we lose our way until it's too late. And usually, what means too late is somebody gets uh, shot down, or or the mission goes poorly because we only then do we realize that our training has not been adequate. Uh, right, and it is a readiness issue, and it's always hard for the the military departments to build a case for readiness because you don't see a product. You know, most of the time, you don't spend money uh, at. Uh, a big company, you don't have jobs in a district. I mean, of course you do, but it's not quite the same as buying a whole bunch of C-130s or F-15Es uh, or something like that. So it's always difficult to build a constituency for spending money on keeping your readiness high. But if you fail to do that, um, you pay for it on the battlefield. So there's an interesting sidebar on page 60 and 61 uh, that goes as a companion piece, let's call it. Um, and uh, so um, walk us through this scenario and, and let's talk about what this has to do with your main thesis here. So um, 1999, Allied Force, um, Strike Eagles deployed to Aviano, uh, where we were, you know, very nicely hosted by the F-16 guys, who we instantly outnumbered three or four to one. Uh, when we showed up in their squadron. But uh, we, of course, did all kinds of missions. We did a lot of interdiction. We did what we called close air support, uh, which was really armed reconnaissance. But we also did the, the combat air patrols, uh, particularly the defensive combat air patrols, because we always planned for some kind of air threat 
uh, to NATO aircraft uh, to be presented by the Serbian Air Force, which had MiG-29s and MiG-21s. So these were boring missions, and they were long missions. In this case, it was uh, 6.9 hours. Uh, and I was in the Macedonia cap. Uh, we were two-ship. Shooter and I were number two of a two-ship, call sign sword. So we were sword 5-2. And we are over Macedonia with the tankers basically behind us, going north-south and looking up uh, towards Pristina. And nothing was happening. And, you know, for hours, nothing happens. And then we started, more accurately, I started picking up radar contacts because the radar in number two aircraft was just a tad bit better than the one in number one that day. So we started calling them out, and the French AWACS couldn't see them. And they, uh, they called out, they kept calling out that the picture was clear, which means that there's nothing airborne. But that wasn't the case. We had both radar and infrared detections, and when your scope is blank, you say your scope is blank. You don't say the picture is clear, meaning there's nothing in the air at all. So we were constrained by the rules of engagement, which were left over from the no-fly zones, and that we needed a, uh, a certain set of criteria, one of which the airplane had to be fast. And these airplanes weren't fast enough. They were flying a up and down diving profile that looked to us like a ground attack profile. So we had to, under the rules of engagement, call Cyrano, the French AWACS, have them ask the, uh, the command and control back uh, in Italy at the CAOC in Vicenza for permission to engage because only there was no – we were out of range. It was SATCOM. Fighters didn't have SATCOM at the time, so we needed to call AWACS. And we did. We request permission to investigate. We think it's a ground attack profile, and we got nothing. And the, the French radar couldn't see anything. Uh, and, you know, this was, I point to this as a bad case of C2, but it was also a good case of flight discipline. You know, brand new two-ship flight lead, and he adheres to the ROE, uh, and we stay in the cap. But I'm convinced that people on the ground were hurt because um, we had not trained the French AWACS to do the mission they were doing. They were an airborne early warning and not an airborne warning and control asset. And we had not appropriately, you know, exercised all the pieces so that it was reasonable to get a reply um, back through the AWACS to the CAOC and back in a very short period of time or we should never have had that restriction. And as an example, 28 December, again, the SAM strike again, we were under rules of engagement that meant that we had to get permission uh, to strike if we were, even if we were fired upon. And uh, uh, Brigadier General Dave Deptula was the CFAC there, and you hacked the clock, and from the time we asked for permission, turns out the AWACS had already asked for permission uh, to conduct the, uh, the counterstrike, and we got approval in less than 90 seconds from when the fighters asked. And that had been essentially exercised effectively. So two big differences with two big outcomes. So this is a, that's an awesome sea story. And, and I'm reminded of being a Tomcat guy, the, was it 88 or 89, the VF-32 Libyan situation? Uh, it was January 89. Okay, so the 89 situation, which is like the opposite of, of having 
a, a the it's like the the 180 out C2 situation, which is the airplane um, has what it believes to be situational awareness. There were some anomalies of the F-14 where you could create uh, the uh, illusion, let's say, of of the bogey jinking. Um, the pilot in that airplane was asking for. Uh, the Admiral Alpha Bravo to to weigh in. There was no command and control from um, a big picture AWACS. The the E two didn't didn't have enough of a picture to say no. That airplane is not jinking. It's going straight and level. Um, so it, it's sort of like the opposite of what you're positing in your in the Cyrano Sword Five Two story, which is in your scenario the aircrew have the best situational awareness, and so there should be no requirement for an engagement to be predicated against a command and control from headquarters. Um, but I'm thinking of the, the other one where fog of war, um, and some you have some fog of war, right? There's it's always these elements of you have a AWACS that's not the right kind of AWACS at this time. You know, Murphy's Law is in play. Um, so again, this is a, a pitch for training, real-world training. So these are what bilats are for, right? This is why we do bilateral exercises. This is why we work with NATO partners against red air uh, to, to have these work through these kinds of eventualities where, you know, it, you're fragged on an ATO to do something and that airplane isn't available. So here comes a, a different airplane and you get the real time. Okay. It's not, uh, you know, it's not an Air Force AWACS. Now it's a French AWACS. And so let's do it. And you can discover all of these limitations in a peacetime training environment, not during wartime. Um, so again, this is a pitch for real-world training and not just simulation. And it's real-world training, you know, at multiple levels. It's not enough to just have the fighters go out and do their 4v4s. Um, you have to exercise the system, and you have to exercise the system in a way that you are exercising it with built-in failure conditions that you might have to deal with. Yeah, and so we had uh, the South Korean exercise canceled uh, under the auspices of it costs too much, uh, which, again, having done a bunch of bilats, the, some of them are boring. You know, doing Bright Star over Egypt is more training for the Egyptians than it is for American forces. But you do learn things, you know, and, and uh, I think, think of some other NATO bilats that I've done that are amazing in terms of the low levels and working with Spanish Harriers and all kinds of things like that, where only in those environments you discover the sort of granular, granular limitations of, of working a combined force or whatever, right? So again, you've got to do the real world training. There's no simulation that can replicate what you're going to learn if you, if you do those kinds of peacetime training missions. And I remember a case of my first flag exercise at Nellis. I showed up, F4Gs. I have been mission ready for less than 30 days. And we had the new you know, flight planning system. It wasn't that new, but it was computerized, and we could not get it to work. You know, We couldn't generate flight plans. We couldn't do fuel planning. We couldn't do mission planning. But I could because I had brought my circular slide rule, the whiz wheel, along. I still knew how to use it. The whiz so wheel? I haven't heard of that word forever. That's awesome. So I'm, you know, I you just I won always, podcast bingo. I, I agree. Whiz wheel, yeah, that goes, line, we've never that goes that. way back. That's great. <laughs> I always deployed with a whiz wheel, particularly after this experience, because I spun all of our flight plans, and it was easy to do, and I was trained to do it, and we had the tools for when the computer let down. That's 
That's fantastic. Yeah. It, it reminds me of Tamps and how the, the Tamps. The ta- Jeez, ta- we're, we're kicking aircraft. it old school here on tactical this Tactical aircraft mission planning oh system God. that was supposed to revolutionize aircrew training and aircrew uh, planning, right? Mission yeah. planning. And then it almost never worked for the first uh, eight or 10 years that we had on the carriers. And yes, yeah, so you always had to do it old school. So how, how are we trend, trending here, Michael? Are, are we, are things looking better? Uh, does, does, you know, not just the Air Force, but DOD get it here um, in terms of how we're funding exercises and flight hour funding and so forth? So I, we are definitely improving over the worst of our years, right? The sequester-imposed cuts were a disaster. We've refocused some of our exercises. We're definitely on the upswing. We are not where we were when I was a lieutenant and young captain. Um, and I, I always worry, it's one of my big worries, that um, we will build a technologically-based structure, particularly in command and control, that simply will not work and cannot reasonably be expected to work under combat conditions, and that because we have put too much faith in the technology that we fail to train our people for the inevitable failure conditions. You know, my last air story, since I don't really tell sea stories, um, is that back in the day when the Cold War wasn't yet over and we flew F-4s out of Spangdalem Air Base, Germany, we would occasionally do a sortie in which the first radio call we made was Spangdalem Tower, Panther 1-1, gear down, full stop. We expected the Soviets to be all over our communications all the time. And so we did occasionally practice complete calm-out exercises. We had the airspace control plan. NATO had practiced this regularly, if not you know, incredibly regularly. And we could do it. Yes, we were going to lose effectiveness, but we could still uh, service the air task order, uh, meet our mission requirements in the frag, and come home again if the radios did not work at all. Those are the good old days of MCON Alpha and uh, Com Out, and you know the, the ship right. would turn off its tack in and zip lip zip like you said, no yeah, comms. Right. Uh, that that was pretty intense uh, uh, training. So. Michael, you're an electronic warfare officer. Uh, is the Air Force moving back to training in that really rigorous electronic warfare, you know, denied environment? Is that is that starting to be stressed? And are, are junior aviators you're talking to, are your counterparts who are now captains and, and uh, first lieutenants in the back of F-15s, are they getting that kind of training? Is it is it even uh, emphasized in the syllabus or is it uh, still yet to come? Right. So it was never in the syllabus. You know, I did it because I was in a NATO squadron. And the honest answer to the question is, I don't know. Um, I suspect not uh, because of um, the, the flying environment is different, right? So the idea now of airplanes flying around Europe without communication with air traffic control uh, might be something that we could not get away with today because it's not the Cold War. There is not a shared perception of a threat that would require that kind of training. Um, but I, you know, I've never been assigned to Korea. I know that the Korea-based squadrons have always been guys who regularly exercise under what they expect to be very brutal wartime conditions. So I suspect that there is training like that, but I also suspect it's spotty. But it may very well be that that was always the case. So we heard at Tailhook when we were talking to some of the Top Gun principals that they're not punting on 
1v1 and post-merge, you know, quote-unquote dogfighting training, you know, we had heard anecdotally that because everybody's so confident in the forward quarter BVR capability of the F-35 that there was no need to, uh, you know, or there was less of a requirement to, to do, uh, you know, basic fighter maneuvers. And the Top Gun principals pushed back on that and said, no, we're, we're, we're going to teach pilots how to maneuver the airplane uh, in close quarters because of the failure of technology. So that was heartening. And I'm reminded of what of that with the question Bill just asked you, which is, um, you know, are we training for a degraded high-end fight? Um, and you, you have honestly answered that you're not sure. But my fear is that people will say, well, the F-35 isn't susceptible to jamming or, you know, the things that affected the F-4G or the Strike Eagle are, are not in play because of technology. But we all know that that's folly at some right. level. Right, and so... You know, I can point to a specific example, and that's, you know, the low-altitude environment. Okay, we don't – the U.S. Air Force does not fly nearly as much low-altitude as it used to. And that's training that, – that's a skill set that's not easy to pick up quickly. Um, and I think in a modern air defense environment, I am a proponent of low-altitude and, if necessary, extreme low-altitude flight because it doesn't matter how big your radar cross-section is if there's a hill between you and the radar. Uh, but that is a specific, you know, warfighting training example where we do not do as much as we used to, and that that is a skill that we can't get back quickly, and we don't have a technological option to solve the problem. It's got to be solved with training. Right, right. Also, to that that point, stealth doesn't work against bullets. Um, that's true, but it often works against systems that. Uh, might fire the bullets more accurately. Well, except another fighter that's on your six kind of thing is what I'm what I'm saying. If somebody's gunning right. you, in the visual, it fight. doesn't matter that you're stealth. Yeah. Right. Um, so again, yeah, that's, that's a pitch for right. BFM, right? Yeah. And so as an F4 guy, you know, we learned a couple things. Uh, you know, the post-Vietnam crowd, the guys who were my instructors, taught us two very important things about the Phantom. One, Phantoms burn, uh, which is important to know because F105s exploded. And a Phantom could keep burning long enough to get you to the Gulf of Tonkin or to Laos. And the other thing was never, ever, ever build an airplane, fighter airplane that doesn't have a gun and can't do BFM. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a great quote to end on. Michael, thanks for joining us and thanks for writing for Proceedings. Our guest today was uh, Colonel Michael Petruca, U.S. Air Force. His article is in the September issue of Proceedings. It's called We Were Well-Trained Once and Young. And Mike, thanks thanks for joining us. And uh, what's, what's your next topic going to be? Uh, so the next topic, I'm probably looking at uh, malpositioning in the idea that Russian forces in Europe uh, are essentially forward deployed. And the U.S. posture to support NATO is essentially CONUS deployed, and I'm not sure that that's going to work well. Mm, great topic. Sounds great. I like it. I like it. Okay. Well, we look forward to, to uh, seeing that when you can send it to us. And until then, uh, to, all, to you and also to uh, all of our listeners, remember, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. 
by leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit NorthropGrumman.com slash EW.